The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The West has hammered the Russian economy, its banks, and wealthy individuals with sanctions in recent days in response to its invasion of Ukraine. Bill Browder, a money manager in Russia turned anti-corruption activist who successfully campaigned for sanctions against Russian officials over the last decade, joins us on The Exchange, Breaking Views weekly podcast. Bill Browder explains why sanctions against oligarchs will anger President Vladimir Putin, as well as how colossal the impact of the escalating war is for the global financial system. Hello and welcome to The Exchange, a weekly podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. The United States, European bloc and other world powers have hit Russia with an unprecedented barrage of sanctions during the last week in response to its invasion of Ukraine, which Russia calls a special operation. Restrictions have been far reaching. For example, as of Tuesday afternoon, the United States had sanctioned Russia's central bank and its wealth funds key financial buffers in insulating Russia from the global economy and cushioning it from sanctions. Both Europe and the United States have sanctioned President Vladimir Putin himself, although it was unclear how much money he actually held in the West. On Monday, the European Union also froze the assets of several Russian billionaires, including Mikhail Friedman and Alexei Rodoshov, whom it considers close to Putin. Joining me now, is Bill Browder, once a major money manager in Moscow, who then turned Kremlin critic and anti-corruption activist. Welcome, Bill. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here. I was wondering if, if we could just start with talking about how you have a really unique perspective on Western sanctions in this case, because you've actually spent more than a decade of your life trying to enact sanctions against various Russian officials. Could you tell us about that? So I, I was once the largest foreign investor in Russia. I had an, a fund called the Hermitage Fund. Uh, I started complaining about corruption at Gazprom and Sparebank and some of the other big Russian companies. And um, the authorities expelled me from the country, declared me a threat to national security, raided my offices, and ultimately arrested, tortured, and killed my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. And so um, in 2009, after Sergei's murder, I put aside my, my uh, money management business and I started, I focused ex exclusively on going after the people who killed Sergei to bring them to justice. And the eventual policy tool that I came up with was that all these guys who commit these crimes, um, they do them for money and they keep their money in the West. And so the idea that I came up with was that if we couldn't get justice in Russia, which we were never never able to get, um, we should try to freeze their assets and ban their visas in the West. And that became known as the Magnitsky Act. And originally I took this idea to Washington and it was um, something that both Democrats and Republicans could agree on. And um, in 2012, the Magnitsky Act was passed with uh, in the Senate 92 to four and the House of Representatives with 89%. And it became a federal law on December 14th, 2012. And that was when we got our first view of Putin and what he was like. And this is when he stopped the adoption of, of Russian children by American families, right? So it was quite a brutal he, he response. Was, 
he went out of his mind. I mean, and, and Putin is a guy who usually kind of keeps his, his emotions in check. You don't really know what he's thinking. He almost never names his enemies by name. But in this case, he just got so angry. And uh, as you mentioned, his first response was to ban the adoption of Russian orphans by American families, and which sounds pretty bad on the surface. But if you actually look at it in details, much more horrific than you can imagine. And the orphans that were that Americans were adopting were the sick ones. The Russians didn't put up the healthy orphans to uh, foreigners for adoption. And so Americans would come and adopt these children with Down syndrome, spina bifida, fetal alcohol syndrome, HIV, and and American families would take them back to America and nurse these children back to health, and and many times they would have really good and productive lives. And if they stayed in Russia, the orphanages just couldn't take care of them, and so often these children would die. And so the uh, the, the effectively what Putin did by banning the adoption was killing his own orphans as a yeah. protest against um, America passing the Magnitsky Act, which is which is gives you some you know, early view into the kind of person that Putin is. He, he, he was ready to kill, you know, defenseless orphans to make a political, you know, point because he was so unhappy with, with these sanctions. And he also um, then decided to go after me and after the memory of Sergei Magnitsky. He put us both on trial. First time they ever tried a dead man in the history of Russia. Um, I was on trial in absentia and they found us both guilty. And so, um, they couldn't do anything more to Sergei than they already did, but they, he sentenced me to nine years in absentia in a Russian prison and have been chasing me all over the world now, trying to get me back to Russia to presumably yeah. keep me in a prison. Yeah, and um, and part of the West's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine in this case has also been going after Russia's richest people who are considered support, supportive of Putin. You know, either the Kremlin has helped them make their money or they're helping the Kremlin in, in their own domestic and foreign policy aims. Do you think it's effective, especially at this stage? I mean, everything feels so extreme. Do you think Putin still really cares whether, you know, Alexei Mordashov is has had his assets frozen by the EU? Have we kind of moved beyond that? Not at all. I think that Putin is absolutely terrified of this for, for one simple reason. Putin is an extremely rich man. Um, he, uh, he doesn't hold any of the money in his own name. The money is held in the name of people who he can trust and people who already are known to be rich because it's not unusual if they're richer. And so um, all the oligarchs hold Putin's wealth. And Putin spent a great deal of time and a great deal of energy becoming rich. And when I say time and energy, I mean time arresting people, torturing them, killing them, and going through all sorts of ugly convolutions to get this money. And so uh, he values money more than human life. The money is being seized right now. And if there was one policy that really gets to the core of it, it's going after these oligarchs and their money. And, and I, I would venture to say that the reason he went so crazy in 2012 when the Magnitsky Act was passed was because this set up the template to do what we're doing right now. And he understood it. He understood that that there was gonna be a moment in time when he was going to really ratchet up um, uh, all of his bad activities. And and we already had, we now had a, a template and a tool in place 
to do exactly what he really didn't want to have happen, which is have his money seized. I mean, this was his Achilles heel. Putin's money is the one thing, you know, he can do terrible things, invade countries, um, but we have his money. We have his yeah. money via these oligarchs. Yeah, I should say uh, the Kremlin does deny all your allegations, should point that out. Um, but just coming back to that, we've had all of these other sanctions happen as well. You know, the central bank can no longer use its dollar reserves. Why is it that the sanctions on individuals are so much more important? Or do you think it's everything together that's going to really hurt Putin? Well, Putin doesn't care about the Russian people. He, he, he pretends he's a patriot, but um, if he was such a patriot, then he wouldn't have stolen all the money from the state and allowed the people around him to steal all the money. He's not a patriot, he's a criminal. And, um, and so if he sees the institutions getting attacked in Russia, yes, as I mean, that's annoying to him. But what's really annoying is when his own personal interests are at stake. And so I would argue that, you know, all of a sudden we're, we're, we start going after the oligarchs in the West and Putin is literally threatening nuclear war. I mean, it's, it's so obvious what he's upset about. He's upset about his own narrow financial interests. And so, uh, uh, yes, all these other things are going to deplete Russia's resources. The central bank reserves are frozen. They can't use those to support the currency or bail out um, all the, the financial institutions that are going to fail uh, because they've been, been, been sanctioned. Uh, uh, the war is costing an, an enormous amount of money. It, it, this, there, the, everything is going to get quickly depleted. But what really worries Putin more than everything is is his own money. He's already in Russia, judging by Putin's palace, which again the Kremlin denies belongs to Putin. I think it's supposed to belong to the Rosenbergs. But if you even look at Putin's palace, that's so much money. That's more money than most people could imagine spending. At this stage, the only thing his goals have moved beyond personal enrichment. If he's invading countries. Surely invading Ukraine isn't about personal enrichment, so he's got other goals. It's definitely not. In, in my opinion, why is he invading Ukraine? He, he, he spent 20 years stealing all this money, when, and um, uh, people are not happy with their life in Russia. The, the money that, that should have been spent on healthcare and education and roads and infrastructure has been spent on villas and yachts and, and, and Swiss bank accounts. And over time, that starts to add up and that starts to create a real stressful situation. And it's not the only country where this has been done. It's done in, done in, in all these, these countries neighboring Russia. And Putin has, has seen the writing on the wall. In Belarusia, uh, uh, 18 months ago, the people rose up after a fraudulent election and wanted to get rid of Lukashenko. And it was only with Putin's intervention that that was stopped. And then Putin had, had got a chance to see the Nazarbayev clan completely wiped out uh, very recently in, in Kazakhstan. And so he's seen the writing on the wall and he knows that they're coming for him next. And so uh, he's got to do something so it doesn't happen. And he's a very thoughtful, proactive man. And so he came up with this idea of starting a war. It comes straight out of the dictator's playbook, start a war and uh, uh, and then they can't replace you. And so his approval rating is, seven, is around 70%. And half Perhaps shockingly, if you're sitting in London, around 50% of Russians support the military military operation, as it's known, in Ukraine in order to suppress NATO. That doesn't sound like people who are about to overthrow Putin like they tried to do in Belarus. Well, you, you probably could have gotten the same uh, approval ratings of Lukashenko. I mean, you know, who, who's going to give an honest assessment to a stranger 
in a, in a country with a secret police about whether you support the president or not. I mean, yeah. it's just subjective. If your life is, is like worse and dramatically worse over time economically, um, uh, you're not you're not going to like the guy who's who's running the show. It's just it's just simple as that. And as uh, you know, uh, anyone who says that he's popular is is you know it's just a fiction. If he's so popular, then why is he putting anybody who challenges him in jail? Why is he killing and arresting all of his opponents? It just doesn't it just doesn't ring true. It's not it's not right and it's not real. And um, uh, I, I can tell you that the uh, invasion of Ukraine is not about NATO, it's not about Ukraine. Um, and, the, and again, he made up the whole fiction about Ukraine um, as, a, as a narrative to feed to the people, but I wouldn't believe a word, a word he says in terms of that being his, uh, his opinion. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to judge from here though, because he, there's such a tight stranglehold on the media over there, especially if you don't read the opposition newspapers, that I think a shocking number of people believe the narrative, um, perhaps. Well, that may entirely be true, but also a shocking number of people watched um, Alexei Navalny's video about Putin's palace. I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible to know what people really think in Russia because nobody will tell you the truth because they're all scared. And if they're all scared, I mean, it, it, you know, it doesn't make any sense that people love Putin but um, the average, you know, some, something like 60% of the average or 60% of people between the ages of 25 and 40 want to leave the country. You know, th th these, these, these statistics just don't, don't match up with this, with, with the reality that, you know, when you live in an authoritarian regime, um, uh, you're probably going to want to go someplace else. Well, I guess the argument is always that, that people, pro-Putin people give is how much worse things were and the 90s and the instability and you know the pitch the social contract was i will give you stability and that's obviously completely gone out of the window so i think that well, and, and, and in fact this is the most interesting thing so that was the argument so he, so putin was always pointing back to the yeltsin era and saying look you know there was hyperinflation the ruble devaluation stock market crashes you couldn't get food you know the uh, foreign goods were not available etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh, it, you know we don't want to go back to that. And then Putin has deliberately brought everyone back to that. I mean, it's, it just doesn't make sense. It's it's completely, you know, his whole narrative of, uh, you know, I'm the, the 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 source of stability that's going to hold everything together. And then he deliberately unilaterally goes out and ruins it for everybody. It just, it, it not, none of this holds water. I think also the economic system that he's built that's based on state-owned, massive state-owned enterprises. It's a sort of state capitalism where they're very, very rich individuals, but in technically speaking at least Rosneft, Gazprom, Sparebank are uh, more than 50% owned by the state. What do you think the future of that sort of economic system is? I'm not sure there's going to be in any future for the Russian economic system at all um, under you know Putin's wartime leadership. The, uh, the entire economic system is going to get strangled. I'm not even sure that Sparebank will be able to stay solvent uh, <laughs> If the central bank doesn't have the reserves to liquidate to support it, uh, I don't know how they they meet their liabilities. Um, you know, there's there, there's an entire, you know, uh, existential change that's going to happen as a result of 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 what's going on right now. It's I mean, it's remarkable. Uh, the dominoes are are falling every minute. There's another Western company that's pulling out, um, suspending operations, suspending trade. 
uh, I mean, it's it, it it will this 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 situation is going to devastate um, the entire Russian economy as we know it, and devastate the, uh, the 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 people of Russia, including the thousands that were arrested for protesting against the war. Um, I just wanted to go back to your experience of dealing with EU and US lawmakers. Um, you know, because it's been a really long time in the making and there's been a whole series of malign uh, Russian actions, which I should say the Kremlin denies, like the poisoning of Alexandra Litvinenko in the UK, the, salt, the famous Salisbury poisoning, the, you know, of course, the annexation of Crimea. And I just wanted to ask you whether you think they've been too slow to act and what your impression and if that's the case, then why? What's the West's role been in helping fuel this system that Putin has built? Well, so you, you, you've, you've listed off all sorts of atrocities, and I could probably carry on listing some more. And after each one, there was no consequence to, to Putin. There was, I mean, maybe a few diplomats were kicked out or some minor sanctions were placed on, you know, a bunch of, of you know, generals in the Russian army, but, not, not, you know, the economy wasn't touched and the oligarchs weren't touched. And, um, and so Putin kind of got used to this. And there's an expression in the investment world that past performance is not a predictor of future performance, but everybody sort of, um, I mean, so he, he, he predicted <laughs> that, that the future performance of the West in response to invading Ukraine was gonna be the same as the past performance, which was nothing. And so, um, you know, we, we have kind of given him this green light, if you will, by being so, all these Western um, appeasers have been out there. And, and I, I've dealt with it in, in every day of my life for the last decade where I, I was explaining the atrocities that Russia was committing, that Putin was committing, and and um, begging and asking and cajoling and demanding um, for consequences, for sanctions on, on Putin and the people in his regime. And everybody just wanted, not, and I wouldn't say everybody, because eventually I was eventually successful in a lot of places, but but the common refrain almost always from the beginning was to push, was to say, you know, uh, we need to deal with Russia. We have important business with Russia. Um, uh, you know, you're being too extreme. And, and, um, and they just wanted to carry on appeasing Putin. And, uh, and by doing so, it gave him the confidence to, to do this terrible thing. And the trouble is that Putin is not a man who knows how to, you know, he, he doesn't have a reverse gear. He can't back up and stop this. He can't withdraw. He's, he's living in a, a prison yard and, and in his prison yard, you know, you have to be the meanest, toughest guy in the yard. Otherwise they're gonna come for you with a shank. And, and that, that's how he thinks. And so he can't show weakness, he can't back down and he's put himself in an, in an impossible situation and put us in an impossible situation because the more terrible stuff he does and he will do more terrible stuff and the more heartbreaking stuff, we have to react and the more we react, he will escalate. He doesn't know how to do anything different. And so it's kind of hard to see how this ends up with anything other than catastrophe. That is a pretty bleak assessment. Um, I mean, I, I sort of, when you were speaking, I wanted to ask you that, that if there's a tit for tat, it, you know, before the concerns seemed to be just even days ago when we were writing about it, the narrative from Washington and Brussels was sort of we want to protect the energy market and we don't want to do anything to um, jeopardize that because particularly the EU is very dependent on Russian gas. And now that's 
gone out of the window, I think, to an extent that SWIFT has been, uh, Russian banks have been kicked out of SWIFT. Um, the central bank reserves thing has been described as sort of the nuclear option in terms of um, economic sanctions. What is the next escalation? And given given uh, the West has been slow to act uh, decisively in response to Russian aggression, um, what's going to happen next? What can they do? Well, we can we can get the SWIFT thing right. There's only 70% of the banks are, are uh, unplugged from SWIFT. We need to 100%. The, um, the next escalation will be um, a long list of oligarchs whose assets are frozen, and we'll start to see, you know, really emblematic cases of, of seizures of properties and yachts and so on. Uh, and, uh, and then we're just going to see as uh, day after day, more and more um, uh, Western companies on their own volition will cease doing business with Russia, and which will create a, a massive economic contraction um, in the country. And, and Putin will, will react to that. And then, sadly, the next the next thing we do is probably going to have to be military. You know, what, are we going to stand by and watch a, a mass slaughter of of Ukrainian civilians in Kiev, or or will we, you know, create a no fly zone? I mean, there's all sorts of things in uh, that that may develop from this, which are you know, which we're on the you know we're on the table a week ago, but maybe on the table next week. Well, I, I suppose the a popular opinion is that. A confrontation, a direct confrontation with NATO is actually exactly what Putin wants, and that that would be a no-fly zone, or say NATO forces would be playing into his hands. So that sounds quite uh, risky, as well. Um, well, it may be riskier than than allowing. So the, 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 for for all of us, we have to say, um, if he gets through Ukraine, that he's not stopping with Ukraine. His next stop is to challenge. Um, Article Five of NATO to see whether we're we're ready to go to war with him over Estonia or Lithuania, and so um, it may be if we've concluded that he's behaving the way he's doing, um, uh, uh, and, and where it's going to go, we, we may decide that it's it's actually less risky to engage him now than to engage him later. And I'm not a military planner, but um, I see what I see the writing on the wall. I've dealt with him. My myself in a conflict where I've seen how crazy and self-destructive he is, and how he keeps on escalating, and we have to war game this out and figure out what the best way of of stopping him is. Yeah, I mean, just to, just to finish, um, I'd like to ask you to put your money manager hat on uh, because you know we're all about agenda-setting financial insight, which is kind of surreal in an environment where civilians are being bombed and towns being taken in Ukraine. Uh, but I wanted to ask you to put it into a broader economic context for the world. How huge is this? What does it mean for people who have nothing to do with Ukraine, for example? Well, this is a tectonic shift. Um, I'm, when I started my career more than 30 years ago, it was at the end of the uh, breakup of the, the end, this Berlin Wall came down and the end of the Soviet Union. And there was a thing called the peace dividend. And the peace dividend was all the money that used to be spent on defense um, fighting with the Soviets could now be um, spent on, you know, productive endeavors um, where we wouldn't wouldn't have to, you know, spend it on military spending. Well, we're now going in an opposite direction where the peace dividend has now been um, evaporated and um, we're going to have to spend a lot more money 
um, on unproductive things like defending borders and, and stopping Vladimir Putin and his allies, whoever they may be, um, from causing us more harm and, and grief. And that, that, that cost is gonna be a very big cost and we're gonna see it in lots of different ways and it's an unexpected cost. And, uh, and I wouldn't underestimate how that will affect financial markets and, and tax systems and, and politics and, and everything going forward. And, and you know, we thought we had enough trouble coming out of COVID with all the new debt and all the inflation and so on. And now we have a much bigger added risk on top of that. And it's just gonna make life very complicated uh, for investors and, and for, for governments uh, how to navigate through. That's a very scary note to end on. Well, Brada, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslich in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on ACAS, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out every day on breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.